Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, podcasting to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today, on this, the 5th of March 2015, I'm very pleased to welcome to the programme the Reverend Dr. Robert H. Bennett, who is Executive Director of Luther Academy and Guest Professor of Missions at Concordia Theological Seminary, both in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and an International Mission Specialist. He is dedicated to studying the topic of spirituality, and his research includes various forms of animism found in the continents of North and South America, Africa, Asia, and Europe, and his book called I Am Not Afraid, Demon Possession and Spiritual Warfare, True Accounts from the Lutheran Church of Madagascar, is one of the few published and peer-reviewed resources available to the scholarly community on the topic of exorcism. And it's the research that went into the writing of that book that is going to be the subject of our conversation today. Dr. Bennett, thank you very much for joining us on The Mind Renewed. Thanks, Julian. It's wonderful to be with you. It's great to have you. Now, actually, it's really down to Derek Gilbert of uh, PID Radio and View from the Bunker that we're in touch because Derek kindly suggested that you get in touch with me regarding your book and Concordia Publishing House kindly sent me a copy to read. Uh, In fact, they've sent me about half a dozen copies and I'll have something to say to listeners about that at the end. But um, I have to say I found it a fascinating study and really quite challenging in a number of ways, certainly from a, a mainstream denominational perspective. But we're getting onto all that in a few moments. So perhaps could you tell us first a bit more about yourself and what you do? I mean, you're this, you are an ordained uh, Lutheran minister, you have a PhD, and uh, you are a missions specialist. So how did all that come about for you? Well, before uh, becoming a pastor, I was in the secular world uh, in management and engineering, and uh, the Lord convinced me into the seminary by the uh, the help of a number of friends who suggested I should consider uh, studying for the ministry. Served as a pastor in a few different churches over the last 15 years or so. And then after completing my PhD, um, started to teach in the area of missions, specifically dealing with uh, world cultures and religion at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And then, oh, within the last six months now, I am the executive director of Luther Academy, and we provide classes all over the world for pastors who haven't had an opportunity to have a thorough theological education. We go and help supplement that. So that's basically uh, what I do. Um, The studies of animism, uh, we can get into that a little bit as we talk. And what actually drew you towards mission on a global scale? I actually kind of fell into it by accident. As I was a pastor in a congregation, uh, completed a couple of master's degrees and thought about the Ph.D. program. And the one that was uh, accessible to me was a Ph.D. in missiology and cultural studies. And so I thought, well, uh, I need something to study. I had a good friend who was in Madagascar who'd been the dean of the seminary there for 30 plus years and invited me to come visit and kind of fell into this whole topic as a result of of those things. Aha, so that was the Madagascar connection. But what about the the demon possession and spiritual warfare aspect of this? Because this is the title of your book, isn't it? I am not afraid, demon possession and spiritual warfare. How did that fit into this picture? Well, originally I started to study conversion in the uh, country of Madagascar. It's one of the fastest growing uh, areas of Christianity in the world. And specifically to the Lutheran uh, perspective where I come from, Uh, There are over 5 million Lutherans in the island of Madagascar, which has a population of about 20 million total. So I was originally working on conversion and looking to see how that church was growing so quickly, and it did not take long at all to find out why, and a lot of it is a result of the spiritual warfare that's taking place in the animistic religions as Christianity connects with them. Mm-hmm. And just to be clear, your book is actually an academic book, isn't it? It's, it is actually the fruits of your research out there, and it's not difficult to read. I have to say, you've written it in, in that kind of way to make it very easy for people to come to terms with. But when you first went out there, back in 2007, you experienced something which seemed to shake you, and you recorded it on video. And on your YouTube channel, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes, you have a video of a Malagasy woman undergoing an exorcism. 
and she was clearly distressed and surrounded by this sort of large group of people praying for her. Um, could you explain what was going on there and, and what your reaction to it was? I can, because at this time in my travels, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to be researching, except for I wanted to see why the church was growing. And so they took me to this event that they have in the summer that had, oh, 12 to 15,000 people at it. And its main point was to have church services and Bible study that went on for five days. But in the evening afterwards, they would get together and they would do this ceremony. The best way to maybe describe it would be an exorcism of place. They believe that there's uh, spirits in the area and to they want to remove those spirits from the area. So they just do a general exorcism of the entire location. However, the woman in the video, she was sitting along the sideline and wasn't really a part of the gathering. In those type of places, there's not a lot happening. There's no television, uh, very little radio. And so when you have these big events, you have other people who aren't a part of them come and kind of sit and, and watch. And so the woman in the video was one of those who was just there as a spectator. And yet she got caught up somehow in what was going on and an exorcism took place. How did you recognize this as being an exorcism? At first, I, I wasn't sure what was happening. I, I saw the group and the kind of the exorcism of location taking place. And it just so happens that I, I walked and changed my location so I could get a better uh, video picture of what was taking place. Out of a sudden, uh, there was a woman who started to scream. And I remember looking around trying to figure out where it was coming. I looked down. It was at my feet. So I met this mass group of thousands and thousands of people. And it just so happens the one person who was demon-possessed actually happens to be sitting at the, the base of my feet. It was very obvious there was something wrong with the woman. And it wasn't until we were probably into the exorcism for uh, a number of minutes before I realized even what was taking place. Yeah, it must have been very bizarre for you, actually. Did you find it at all frightening? I did find it frightening, uh, not in a gripping fear kind of way, but uh, as an uneasy hmm. situation. I wasn't quite sure what was happening, and then I, I kind of recognized what was happening. The language was a barrier to me, although I could make out uh, some of the words that were being spoken. It was very obvious that the people were simply speaking the words, uh, be gone in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, very interesting circumstances. Yeah. Was there anything in your training that sort of prepared you to recognize what was going on or cope with the situation? Well, as a pastor, uh, I've been serving the church and dealing with the problems that people have in their lives. Uh, part of my theological education, I, I learned, of course, reading through the Gospels uh, of Jesus' interaction with the demons, but I'd never experienced anything uh, myself up until that point. Well, one of the things that comes out really clearly in your book, particularly the first part, which you call the Malagasy story, is the importance of worldview in all of this, both the Malagasy worldview and the biblical worldview and how those two relate to each other. And uh, of course, to some extent, clash. So could you give us a kind of overview of the traditional animistic Malagasy worldview and how that actually works out in people's practical lives over there? Sure. Uh, the Malagasy worldview would be very similar to a worldview you might find in Africa or in many other places around the world, actually. And when we talk about animism, we generally talk about the people would believe in a creator God, but that creator God is very detached mm. from his creation. Is this the Zanahari you say? In that's, the that's correct, yes. Uh -huh. And that would be in, in their uh, vocabulary. So they have Zanahari, who would be the creator God, However, he, he can interact with uh, the people if he desires, but generally he does not. And so in order to uh, contact him, to interact with him, the people would generally go through a middle tier uh, of spirits. Now, that middle tier of spirits can take on various forms depending on where one is at in animistic context. But in the Malagasy context, it's generally made up out of their deceased relatives or their ancestors. They call them the Rizana. And so when someone dies, in their view, they, they simply pass on to another uh, frame of existence. Uh, they still think them to be in the same locality as they were when they were alive, but unable uh, to be seen by the naked eye. 
And so if you want to have benefits in your life, uh, they would say that it's very important to be venerating or some say worshiping the ancestors to uh, make sure that you remember them and so they too would remember you hopefully in a in a good way because they would then be able to give you blessings and help so would they be a bit like ghosts then really although ghosts that you couldn't see uh yes uh, and they would also in addition to the ancestors believe in various spirits or ghosts um so it's a common occurrence, I think, uh, worldwide you have people um, with such beliefs. Mm -hmm. And you say that the Zanahari, which presumably this is the, um, the anthropologists would talk about a sky god or a top god kind of figure, that this, you say, is very distant. Is there any kind of relationship through these intermediary spirits with that sky god, that top god? There's, there's really not a direct uh, connection, hmm. however... Because the spirit world is considered to be in a higher spiritual frame, they believe that by interacting with the ancestors or the various spirits, that they can control some of the circumstances around them and maybe um, get uh, into the view of that uh, creator God. But that's generally not the, the point. The point is to control that central tier of spirits that have direct control over the lives of the people. And so you can receive blessings from the Rosanna, this collection of mostly ancestral spirits, or cursings, presumably from them as well. How do they go about actually propitiating these spirits? Well, there's a number of ways that they would work with them. Uh, some dedicate their lives to them. They have some ceremonies of sacrifice. One of the stranger ones in the context of Madagascar is a reburial service that they do for the dead. That particular service, every three to five years, they would exhume the body of the ancestor and have a multiple-day feast, rewrap the body, and then place the body back into the tomb. And the, I have a number of pictures of the tombs in the book, which are quite fascinating when you compare them to the homes in which the people live. And so would this be particular ancestors, important people in the family, or would it be for every ancestor? It could be for any ancestor, anyone who's died, uh, because all of them would be important. There would be you know, fathers and uncles and, and mothers and sisters and so on. But they would also have the higher-up ancestors uh, that would be previous kingly figures that they would look for. One would be the Dwani. There's places of Dwani worship where they try to connect with the early prominent figures of, of Malagasy uh, history. So I'm getting the impression that this would be really quite a, certainly a time burden on these people, but also a financial burden. Would that be right? Uh, it's a severe financial burden, and the island of Madagascar, the per capita income, is around 300 or so dollars per year. So it's one of the poorest places in the world. And yet the ceremonies that are conducted, the tombs that are built, really take the majority of the people's income. And what happens to people when they decide that they want to become Christians, they no longer want to take part in these kinds of burial rituals? And I mean, what happens to them in terms of their family connections? Generally, they're excommunicated from their family. The thought goes, if you're not contributing to the veneration of the ancestors, participating in the ceremonies, then you're bringing shame upon the family, and so you must be um, removed from the family, and you're no longer considered to be a part of that family. Wow. Now, there's one thing I wanted to ask you about in this section here, but I'm not sure that I can pronounce the word properly. I'll have a go. Um, Ambirorandro? No, I haven't got that right, have I? You know what I'm talking about. This uh, mermaid spirit Oh, the mermaid spirits. Well, those are also common um, throughout animistic societies. I think if you go just about anywhere where there's traditional religions, they'll have various names for these uh, mermaid type of spirits. And so it's not the mermaids that we see in Hollywood and depicted uh, in our cultures. Uh, generally, the mermaid figure in animistic societies is one of the most dangerous and worrisome spirits. Yeah, that's what came over in your book, certainly. Could you describe what's so dangerous and disturbing about it? 
Well, of course, I'm describing it from the perspective of a traditional religion out of animism. Not that I would mm. believe this myself. But, sure. but they uh, would understand that these are spirits, generally women, who seek to pull men down and take them into the waters, um, become husband and wife with them, expect veneration from them. And so there's a few stories in the book that are, are quite pronounced of one man who believed that he was down under the water for quite some time and eventually was rescued from this spirit. Well, there's a lot of fear surrounding that particular spirit, you say? Uh, there is, because uh, it's known for taking family members away from the family. People disappear. But we see this, uh, once again, it's very common um, wherever you find animistic religions. Yeah. And one of the things you say is that people seek to be possessed for various reasons. Now, I want to ask you whether you really mean possession in the sense that we normally talk about it in popular culture here in the West. I mean, are you talking about sort of being taken over completely or people dabbling in things or being sort of oppressed by spirits? Do you really mean possession in the way that we might normally mean it? In that context, I do mean possession in the way that we normally mean it. Once again, they don't have an understanding of direct good and evil um, uh, spirits. They, they think are somewhat neutral depending on how you manage them and communicate with them and, and provide sacrifices for them. And so the thought would go, if you could get these spirits to recognize you and possess you to take over your body... As a result of that, your life would improve. Remember, these are very poverty-stricken areas of the world. Mm -hmm. And so if a spirit was to take possession as a result of that possession, give you the knowledge to uh, look into the future, to, to give you the knowledge of how to be a better thief, the knowledge of how to uh, cure various sicknesses, that would be seen as beneficial by the traditional people. Mm -hmm. So you would actually cultivate this possession. You would seek to be taken over in some way by this spirit and hoping that you would gain a livelihood perhaps through that. Yes, you see that in a lot of the worship practices within animistic societies, uh, very rhythmic um, music, uh, using drums uh, to, to the point where you're trying to dissociate from your body so that the spirits would then enter in uh, into that place. It must make it incredibly difficult for people who do then convert to Christianity if they're going to perhaps lose their livelihoods. It is in one sense, and yet those that I interviewed, even though they had lost economic benefits from no longer participating in the worship and having the, the powers that they had received from the spirits, nevertheless, they also talked about the great burden that was placed upon them when they were in those circumstances. The spirits would literally uh, control every aspect of their body and their lives and so while so many of them now are, are much more poverty-stricken than they were in, in the past, they actually speak of being a Christian as a uh, release and a freedom that they now experience. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you would compare and contrast this traditional Malagasy belief system that you've been fleshing out here with the biblical worldview. How would you compare and contrast them? Well, the traditional Malagasy worldview would be somewhat similar in the sense that they haven't been so affected by Enlightenment thinking and by rationalism, where they're still open to the, the aspects, of course, of a spiritual world, that there are spiritual forces um, that are still participating in, in daily life. And so there would be a connection with biblical Christianity in that point. However, on the other side, uh, the traditional religion would not accept the basic scriptures. They would not know uh, who Jesus is, um, who the true God that we Christians would say uh, would be interacting with. And so while, while there's some similarities in the sense that they have an open worldview to the spiritual, uh, there's also a lot of uh, disconnects with the biblical worldview as well. As you said already before, that the notion of God is this very distant idea, which of course is completely different from the Christian understanding. But also, what's their idea of sin? I mean, do they have any sort of concept of sin and disobedience towards that God? Uh, they do. There, there's an understanding of sin, but I don't know if it would necessarily be called sin when you're talking about traditional religions. You've fallen out of favor 
would be maybe a better way of, of, of understanding it, that for whatever reason you've not done what is necessary to care for the spirits, and so as a result of that, um, that you could be outside of their favor. But when you talk about things like stealing and a lot of the other moral issues, uh, they actually seek to have a better ability to do those things by worshiping the spirits. Right, I see. So it's going to be really quite arbitrary, depending upon what the spirit is believed to want of them. Right. Yeah. It's interesting that what you say about the openness in terms of worldview is very similar to the kind of things that the charismatic teacher John Wimber said, that uh, his experience in Africa was that people were open to things like healings and miracles more out there because they had this sort of open worldview that allowed for such things to happen. It seems to be something similar you're saying of the Malagasy people. Yeah, and I think it's something, uh, we'll probably get to this a little bit later, but I think it's something we're starting to see more in our Western societies now than in the past, but we can hold off on that for a bit. Well, you've already said that Lutheran Christianity is very big in Madagascar, but presumably there are other Christian denominations out there and other religions, apart from, of course, the indigenous animism. But if it's true that Lutheranism is the largest denomination, is that because the Lutherans first brought Christianity to the island? Uh, no, actually, they did not. The uh, Reformed uh, area of, of Christianity were really first on the island. Lutherans came in about 200-plus years ago as just one more mainline denomination uh, sending missionaries to the island of Madagascar. However, there was a difference in how the different church bodies interacted. So the early missionaries, what, what sort of time did they go out there? Uh, the very early ones would have been the beginning of the 18th century. Mm -hmm. The Lutherans would have entered into the picture uh, the beginning of the 19th century. And so when the Lutherans arrived there, did they find a form of Christianity there? There were some Christians there, but Christianity was by no means the main religion. Uh, the early missionaries, they came in, they were able to translate the Bible into the Malagasy language, and then there was a great persecution that took place, and all of the missionaries had to leave. So the Lutheran Church in Madagascar, and, and really Christianity Madagascar itself, has a certain indigenous connection where they were left with the scriptures in their language, and all of the missionaries at the time were taken away or were killed. And so they, they had to develop a theology on their own. Probably as a result of that, it was helpful because their theology was very connected to what they read in the scriptures because it was so close to the, the life that they were leaving and the worldview that they already had. So did this ministry of exorcism arise out of their worldview then plus these translations of the scriptures? Was this an indigenous kind of hybrid that developed? Well, exorcism is found in, in all religions, not just Christianity. So, um, so, so there's probably a, a basic understanding of exorcism already existing there. But as the uh, early Malagasies are reading the scriptures and seeing how Jesus is interacting with these spirits, they just put the points together and make the connection and recognize what's happening. And that's probably why they don't have extensive rituals of exorcism. Uh, they're really pretty simple and basic. Okay, so when the Lutherans then arrive then in the 19th century, what do they basically find? How do they react to this strange kind of culture that they find there? At first, I think they just try to ignore it, try to think, okay, this is just part of the culture of the people, the, not only the Lutherans, but all the Christian missionaries who, who entered into the island at that time were pretty affected by rationalism and, and themselves didn't have a place for these spiritual things. However, it, it took some quite some time for the regular people of Madagascar to convince the pastors what was happening there. And it was the Lutheran Church, for some reason, that took off. Why do you think it did, rather than other denominations? I think because the Lutherans who were there weren't as affected by some of the rationalistic thinking and theology of some of the other uh, missionaries who were there at the time. Lutheranism is, is very different than most Protestant areas of Christianity, and the fact that it has this understanding of presence. Not only is the Bible the true and inspired Word of God, 
but they would believe that when that word is spoken, that, that Jesus is literally there in his person in that midst. And so Lutheranism becomes a very easy transition into these understandings of, of exorcism. Okay, well, let's turn to the exorcisms themselves as they're carried out in this particular setting. Now, there's loads of things that I can ask about this. Uh, let me start by asking about the kinds of people who do regularly do these exorcisms. Now, you have this group that you talk about called the Piandri or the Shepherds. Can you describe who they are and how it is they go about doing this business? Sure. The, the church is so large there, and it's adding so many members. Uh, the pastors are always in need of assistance. And so they have a group of, of lay people, regular church members, who uh, go and receive additional training, usually two or three years, to be, I guess we could say, assistants to the pastors. And so uh, one pastor may have a, a number of these lay assistants who would then help them with an exorcism. These people are, are trained in their understanding of the Bible. They're, they're trained of how to deal with an exorcism when it takes place. They're, they're trained in caring for their neighbor. They're not paid positions. These people are, are, are regular folks who have regular jobs that, when called on, are there to help their neighbor in these spiritual circumstances or just sometimes uh, for their daily bodily needs. And these are the people who are dressed in white, are they, in the video? They are. Uh, mm -hmm. The uh, Piandri are dressed in white, but the pastors are also dressed in white, so you can't really tell who's who by, by the dressing. Pastors in the uh, Lutheran Church of Madagascar are only male, uh, but you have women Piandri. Uh, so like I said, it's hard to tell who's who with the, with the dressing on. Would you say that the essence of their training is exorcism, or is it broader than that? Yeah, it's much broader than that. It would be uh, maybe a lower-level seminary education that re they're receiving, you know, church history, church doctrine, biblical interpretation, and exorcism. So it's not all focused on exorcism. Uh, I, I'm writing about exorcism as a result of the book, but that's their venue is much larger than that. Okay, so it's just one skill amongst many skills, really, for the purposes of evangelism, I guess. Right. How do they actually go about this evangelism? How, you know, they're, they're out there in the world, but they've got to engage with people. They're dressed in white. I don't know whether that's something that normal people would expect to interact with somebody who's dressed like that. I mean, how would they actually contact with people? Yeah, they, they would only dress in the white when they're in the middle of, uh, of some type of liturgical service where they're actually there gathered for prayer and and, and preaching and exorcism. Normally, the people would be dressed just as anyone else would be on the street. But their evangelism program is, is very interesting. In the cities, specifically, you have a lot of people who are on the streets walking to their various places of employment or school in the morning. So they have these prayer houses that are generally on the main streets with open doors, they would have prayer in the morning, uh, singing hymns in the morning. And a lot of people, as they're walking by, would just stick their head in, uh, see what's happening. They would have exorcisms of, of the place, not necessarily individuals, but of the place. And, and people would be attracted and come in through these prayer houses, which are then attached to something called tobies. And tobies are areas of mercy care for individuals. So it would be care that's both spiritual and physical. There'd be pastors involved there dealing with the spiritual side, but, but trained doctors and, and nurses as well. So very holistic program in a place where really there's not much of any medical uh, help for the people. In the second part of your book, you analyze the exorcism practices of Jesus and the apostles. And the general message that comes over to me is the simplicity of what takes place, um, that Jesus will just say, be gone. And of course, the apostles will say, be gone in the name of Jesus. And you say that that's the kind of thing that's going on in Madagascar in this Lutheran context. Is it 
always the case, though, that it is just as simple as that, because there are other exorcist traditions which say that you have to identify the name of the spirit and that kind of thing. And we find that, at least it's implied in um, Mark 5, where Jesus asks the chap at Gerasa, what is your name? And he replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. So is it really always as simple as you present it? Well, first on, on the simplicity, while the ritual, I would say, is really that simple, uh, the act isn't. Uh, sometimes people uh, undergo exorcisms for months and years uh, before relief comes. So so it's not just simple as, as saying a few words. And it's actually something I talk about in the book, that if we start to think it's in the, the words that we use, really um, we're having a misunderstanding of what's taking place in exorcism. So, so it's not as simple as just speaking a few words, but the... The rite itself is that simple. And so you, you mentioned uh, the Gerasian uh, demoniacs. Uh, in that case, we do have Jesus interrogating uh, the demon-possessed man. And so there are a number of rituals out there, including the Roman ritual and others, that say it's, it's necessary to bind the spirit, to uncover somehow the name of the spirit before the exorcism can take place. But, but I think that's really not being uh, faithful to the scriptures. We have the one instance where Jesus is doing an exorcism in this way, and he is the very Son of God interacting with these devils. But all the other uh, accounts of exorcism that we see in the scriptures are really that simple. Um, For instance, in the book of Acts, Paul with the the girl who has the spirit of divination just simply says, be gone in the name of Jesus Christ and and the spirit is gone. And most of the other places where Jesus uh, performs exorcisms, it's that simple as well. He simply just speaks the word. And as a result of that performative word of God, the spirits are, are cast away. I actually find um, some problems with those who would think it's necessary to interrogate the spirits. And I think that's a fundamental different understanding of exorcism between what I see happening in the Lutheran Church of Madagascar and um, in these other bodies. I'll talk about that a little bit if you want, but I want to give you a chance if you have some other questions related to what I've just said. Yeah, um, I suppose one question that comes to mind is, you know, you say that it can often take weeks and months for this kind of ministry to be successful. And this is something that the famous exorcist father Malachi Martin observed as well. Why do you think that is? Why doesn't it just happen instantaneously? This is purely just my own thoughts on the issue. I think that what's happening here is the Lord purposely does not allow exorcism to become magic. If there was just some magical words or some certain um, ceremonies that needed to take place, that's what you see in pagan exorcisms. There's there's just the words, there's the ceremony, and then and then the the release. But our Lord is intimately involved in our lives. He's the only exorcist. I make this point, and whenever I have an an opportunity to talk on this subject, that that Jesus is the only exorcist. The Spirit only leaves when Jesus commands that spirit to leave. And sometimes that happens right away, and sometimes that takes a a very long time. But I think that's the key, is it's not based on our faithfulness or or the words that we're necessarily uh, saying, but that spirit leaves when the Lord requires it to leave. And I think it's really that simple. Mm -hmm. And so that really is the essence of this formula in the name of Jesus. It's not just speaking some words and their magical words, but it's actually invoking the very presence of Christ because he is the only one who can perform that exorcism. Right. And and the Lutherans there would, would understand that by invoking that name, they're invoking that presence. Not that they're bringing Jesus into their midst, but Jesus has promised them that when they speak these words, he would be with them. So once again, we have to be cautious there that they're not, you know, kind of pulling Jesus into their into their gathering, but Jesus has told them that he would be there with them when they when they speak these words. Mm-hmm. There was one thing in the book which uh, sort of jumped out at me, uh, reminded me really of the film The Exorcist, which uh, um, I've been told is uh, quite a distortion of things in many ways. But nevertheless, it did strike me. And this was the Lutheran theologian, I don't know how you pronounce it, is it Quenstedt? Um, He has a list 
of phenomena by which one might recognize a possession. And he, let me just paraphrase that the subject might have unlearned knowledge, apparent knowledge of remote or future things, superhuman strength, exact reproduction of animal sounds, making monstrous gestures, obscenities, horrific screaming, blasphemy, violent fury against self and those standing nearby. Do you recognize any or all of those things as the kind of thing that might be observed in this context where you're researching? Yeah, and I, I think Winchester was very cautious there. He's giving a list of possibilities, but never requiring any of them. People always want a list. What what should I look for? How how do I know? Hmm. And I'm writing a second book right now that maybe we'll talk about at the end. Uh, but part of that, I'm dealing with that topic right now. Uh, these spiritual things, sometimes just there's no way of verifying them, of, of knowing for sure. Now, there are these outward uh, manifestations that we might see attached to a possession, but just because the outward manifestations aren't showing up doesn't mean that possession hasn't taken place. Yeah, but that's certainly a, a fascinating thing because, again, turning to Malachi Martin, he says that in that Catholic context that a great deal of work has gone into to discern whether it's a spiritual case or a psychological case, and he claims that it, it can be discerned. Um, I'm not sure how he would uh, come to this understanding of, of really discerning what's taking place. I, I think ultimately uh, not knowing him that he would uh, find some divine uh, inspiration mixed up in this uh, discerning uh, way of going at it. But I think that's going back to what I started earlier. I think that's a real difference in the understanding of exorcism between uh, what you'd find in Malachi Martin and Roman Catholic ritual than in the Malagasy context. And I think it really comes to a distinct theological difference. This understanding that I mentioned before of presence for the, the Lutherans who are just proclaiming be gone in the name of Jesus, much like you'd see in the scriptures, there's this understanding that Jesus is the one who's doing the work. Uh, they're simply just speaking, and, and he's acting. Whereas in the Roman ritual and other exorcism rituals, there's more of a battle, and, and Malachi Martin would talk about this, you know, this kind of this, this battle between the priest and the demons. And I think that's very problematic. Uh, I know that I have no ability to stand before a demon and, and make him do anything at all. And so my understanding of exorcism would be, I'm just going to speak the words, uh, not that I get my, my personal um, piety involved. I'm not going to think that I need to interrogate. I'm just going to speak the words and trust that the Lord will accomplish what he needs to accomplish on his own time plan. Well, I want to turn to the Western church situation and uh, ask perhaps what we can learn from all of this. So I guess my first question here is, what was the main thing that you learned from all this in your research? Uh, the first thing I learned was is probably uh, the most obvious to me. And while I had learned about this topic through my theological education, it was always in a very abstract way. I think that's true of, of most Christians that uh, attend church in Western gatherings. They may believe that there is a Satan, although many Christians don't anymore. They would believe that there were exorcisms in the past, that there were demons in the past. But because these things just don't uh, fit with their enlightened worldview, uh, they tend to kind of put these into two different categories, like, well, here's my religious side and here's my my scientific uh, worldview that deals with the life around me. And one of the, the first things this research did for me was to kind of shake that up a bit. I was an ordained pastor, and while I believed in all of these things, I believed them in a very disconnected kind of way. Well, I've got to turn to that wonderful Helmut uh, Thielicke quote, and he's a 20th century Lutheran theologian, and he had these three observations as to why theologians might tend to shy away from this subject. Uh, do you mind if I read it? <laughs> no, please do. They're wonderful quotes. <laughs> they, they are, yeah. So number one, the fear of being perceived as a simpleton by one's academic peers. Number two, recognizing that the demonic cannot be placed into scientific categories or objective terms. And three, because evil cannot be seen by evil, just as stupidity cannot be 
be perceived by the stupid. <laughs> and there was a lot of truth in there. Um, you know, materialistic presuppositions masquerading as science plus peer pressure, a tremendous combination there. And uh, I thought to myself, there seems to be a combination that stands behind many objections to the Christian faith, actually. Yes, I put that in there because I love that quote as well, and I think it really does get to the point of what we're seeing happening within Christianity in um, in a Western civilization. Uh, we're struggling trying to live in two separate worlds. More than not, the secular world is the one that's uh, kind of holding sway in our lives. I remember writing this book when people would say, well, I heard you're writing a book. What is it on this? Times I almost didn't want to tell them right. because I knew how they were going to perceive me when I told them. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the things that I find very difficult with my preaching, actually. I, mean, I preach in the Methodist church. It, I wouldn't say that it's a, a liberal kind of context, but I mean, there is a strand of the liberal there, certainly a watering down of things that, w that we've been talking about. And when I preach on how would I describe it? Spiritual matters that actually impact the real world. So not just on a sort of pious level, but things like resurrection, things like new heavens and new earth, things that, you know, actually really do impact the material world, as it were, from a spiritual perspective. There's a resistance. Well, you know, it's interesting. The way I laid the book out, I laid it out in really two parts because of the problem that we're talking about here. The first part of the book deals specifically with Madagascar, a really faraway place that probably many people don't even know where it is in the world. And so the reader of the book, even though they, they maybe don't believe these things, uh, they can read them in this context of this different worldview that is disconnected from them. However, in the second part of the book, I turn to more of a modern context with how Christianity has looked at this issue through the time of the Reformation moving forward, quoting a number of, of sources, and kind of pull them back home and remind them that this isn't something just for a faraway place, but this is at the heart of what all Christians have believed. And by not believing these things, we have to recognize that we're walking away from the faith to a certain respect. Have you actually encountered much by way of spiritual oppression or possession even in your own context in the U.S.? Uh, yes, I have. Now, I write in the book about my circumstances in Madagascar as I was doing some of the research there. Uh, one of the stories I talk about there was we went and found the place of the Dwani worship, and there was three of us, the driver, um, one pastor, and myself. So we uh, we found the location. We walked down. They just had completed their sacrifices. There was blood from the animal sacrifices still uh, dripping and, and wet and, and a number of, of cigarettes lit and kind of set off to the side. They thought for the ancestors to smoke. But as soon as we went down there, we started speaking to the priestess who is the guardian of the spirits down there. And as soon as we went down there, I started feeling uneasy. Uh, I've never had panic attacks, but from what I understand, I mean, it felt much like that, uh, racing the heart, kind of pushing on, on the chest. And so I remember uh, saying, well, it just must be something weird happening to me. And the other men didn't say anything either, but we got in the car. And as soon as we got in the car, the whole thing just disappeared, uh, the feelings. And the other pastor was speaking in Malagasy to the driver in the front seat and trying to calm him down. And I just simply said to him in English, I said, you know, was there something strange there or was that just me? And he was in the front seat uh, trying to s settle the driver down to convince him that the spirits weren't going to follow him home. And it turns out we all experienced exactly the same thing as soon as we walked in there. And it went away as soon as we walked out without any of us talking to each other about what was happening as, as we went. So that would be uh, one of the instances that was different for me when I was in Madagascar. Now I can speak to some of, of the other things that's happened in the U.S. context too as well, if you'd like. Well, yes, would you? I mean, are there, are there any similarities? Um, in the U.S., I, I haven't dealt with full uh, possession, although I would say the uh, remedy for full possession, oppression, or, or hauntings, as some people would say, and I don't believe in ghosts, by the way. I would say that there's a haunting, it's a spirit, and pretending to be a ghost in, in the way I would view it. But I've dealt with these things a lot, and, and I've got another book that's going to be coming out here probably in the next six months or so uh, with a similar title. Rather than I Am Not Afraid, the new book's going to be called They Are Afraid. 
American spirituality. And the book's going to deal with a number of case studies that I've been involved with that would include um, people who are being severely oppressed by demons or people who were being uh, haunted by demons in their home. And so I've got uh, oh, a number of stories related to that uh, that will come out in the new book. And Derek Gilbert mentioned the UFO phenomenon here in the West, and uh, he asked you if you thought that perhaps some of these sightings or so-called sightings and encounters that people report might possibly be phenomena caused by evil spirits. You know, imagine C.S. Lewis's screw tape, you know, saying, well, nature spirits work for the Malagasy's, but uh, what will work for Westerners? Uh, how about aliens? That'll do nicely. <laughs> I'm just imagining that perhaps there's some kind of link there. Do you think there is? I personally do. Of course, I've not done any research on the topic, but I find Satan and, and his demons willing to come dressed in any way that we will receive them. And whether that means they come dressed as previous kingly figure or an ancestor in an animistic context, they come dressed as a dearly departed loved one that someone is missing who visits them in the evening they come dressed, guised in the helpfulness of the Enlightenment, or they come dressed in you know things like Bigfoot or or space aliens. I think the, the really the point is whatever we're open to receiving, they're happy to provide. Yeah. So although many people might consider themselves to be very enlightened rationalists, there could well be these little portals of weakness for all of us, really, in our different cultures. Well, in the next book, I actually make a connection between naturalism and how naturalism, if it's carried out, can lead you right back into spiritualism. And so I'm still working on, on, on flushing all that out. Yeah, fascinating. Which does lead me on to my last question, really. You know, people do say that we're living in this post-Christian culture. I mean, I don't really—I have to say—I don't really like that term because you know, post can sound like it's some kind of progression beyond. You know, we've got beyond Christianity; we're in a, a better place now. So I'll call it a sub-Christian culture. Now, a lot of people would think that this new culture is going to be very scientific, very atheistic. But it seems to me that we're actually, as you've already uh, suggested, there we're moving towards something more like neo-paganism. Do you think? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it's, there's, a, there's a book out there. Um, I don't know if you've come upon it. It's How uh, Christianity Changed the World by a guy named Alvin Schmidt. And I was speaking to that author one time, and he does a really nice job. He kind of shows all the various aspects where, where Christianity went into these pagan nations and, and what resulted uh, from Christianity being there. And if you go and you read that book today, he wrote that, uh, oh, late 70s, I think, early 80s. If you go read that book today, everything that, that he's saying that Christianity has kind of pushed to the sides are the same things that are returning. So, so we're not seeing anything new at all. We're just seeing a, a return or, um, to, to the things of the past when Christianity doesn't have its influence uh, Satan and these pagan practices just return. So actually what you've done here, your research, in future is probably going to be increasingly relevant over here in the West. Well, and that's why I wrote this. We mentioned in the beginning, that's why I wrote it from more of a scholarly perspective. You won't find, we're talking about some more sensational things in this interview, but for the most part, the book is going to be a scholarly look at at, at a people and how they view the world and how Christianity interacts with them. Its purpose, though, is to tie to the Western world and show us that, that there's a lot of connections here with these traditional religions that are becoming a part of the spiritualism of our age. And when is your new book coming out? It's this year, isn't it? It is. I'm, I'm hoping the publisher is going to have it out um, in the fall or towards the end of the year. Uh, I'm still waiting on the exact release date, but I'm sure they're probably going to try to have it out sometime in, in October and November. Well, Dr. Bennett, thank you very much for talking with us. Before we do close, is there anything in particular that you feel you'd like to mention in the interview that we've missed out? Oh, I don't think so. There's, there's probably enough that we could talk for, for hours yet on the subject, but, uh, but I think you've done a fine job covering the necessary items for the interview. 
Well, thank you again. It's certainly, it is a fascinating subject, and I, I think it is an important subject as we move into this new, uh, I'm calling sub-Christian era. It's certainly not, I think, easy for all of us to engage with it, because many of us will not have experienced anything like this, although I know a number of listeners will have experienced something of spiritual oppression in one way or another, and we have touched on this kind of thing a bit in the podcast before. And as I say, your book is an academic work. I found it quite easy to read. As I said, thank you for the way that you wrote it. You wrote it deliberately so that people could access things straightforwardly. Um, I do recommend the book. Is there an easy way that people can get hold of a copy? Well, probably the easiest way for most people would just be to go on to Amazon.com. Uh, you just type in, I am not afraid, uh, demon possession, spiritual warfare, and it'll come up quite easily. Also, I have a website, which is I am not afraid book.com. So both of those places, uh, they, they could find this book and some of the other books I've written as well. Wonderful. And as I said before, I do have a handful of copies of your book here at The Mind Renewed, courtesy of Concordia Publishing House, and I'll be making those available to listeners in the next uh, week or so. And I'll have details about that after the interview. So lastly, let me say thank you very much indeed, Dr. Bennett, for coming on the program. It's been great speaking with you. Well, thanks, Julian. I appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast. Okay, well, that was the Reverend Dr. Robert Bennett speaking with us there. And as I said in the interview, I do have a small number of copies of his book sent to me, courtesy of Concordia Publishing House, which is the publisher of the Lutheran Church in Missouri. And that is cph.org, cph.org. And the book, of course, is I Am Not Afraid, Demon Possession and Spiritual Warfare, True Accounts from the Lutheran Church of Madagascar. And as I say, I very much recommend that book. And in fact, I have five to give away. So if you would like a free copy of Dr. Bennett's book, except, of course, for postage and packing, which I would like to cover the cost of, then all you need to do is as follows. Now, I've given a bit of thought to this. I am conscious that if I just say I'm going to give the books to those who send the first five emails into The Mind Renewed straight after this show gets posted then I'll probably not be giving a fair chance to those regular listeners who I know pick the show up two days or three days or more after it's been posted. So what I've decided to do is this. I'm going to say I will allot the books to the first five people whose emails drop into my inbox at The Mind Renewed on or after exactly 0-100 hours UK time, that's GMT, on Saturday the 14th of March. That's the very beginning of that day. So don't send emails before that time. I'm going to be absolutely strict about it. I have to receive the email specifically requesting Dr. Bennett's book and giving me a postal address to send it to and an email address so that I can reply to you with on or after 0-100 hours GMT on Saturday the 14th of March. And then we can sort out how you can make a donation to cover the postage and packing. And then I'll send them out to you. And of course, please don't be disappointed. I've only got five to give away. And don't expect to hear back from me either. I don't know how many emails I'm going to receive. I may receive zero or five or a thousand. I don't know. So if you don't hear back from me, please take that as an indication that others just beat you to it. So best of luck. Also, in a week from now, I'm going to be recording, at least I'm due to be recording, another debate here at The Mind Renewed. I don't quite know when it will be released after that, but it's certainly due at the moment to be recorded on the very same day, actually, the 14th of March. And this time the debate is going to be between Bobby Gilpin, Christian evangelist and ministry coordinator of UK Partnerships for Christ, who was a guest on this show back in 2013, I think it was, and Michael Flournoy, I'm not sure about the pronunciation of that name, Michael Flournoy, Mormon apologist and author of a book called A Biblical Defense of Mormonism. And although we haven't finalized the motion for debate precisely, the precise wording, it's going to have something to do with the subjects of salvation and grace as understood by our respective guests. Now, I'm saying this so that if any of you have any questions you would like me to put to either of our guests on the subject of Mormonism or indeed the subject of the relationship between Mormonism and evangelical Christianity, then please do send your question in using the contact form at TMR. And if I think the question is useful, then I'll ask it. And if you send a question in using the voicemail facility on the contact page, then it may be the case that your voice will appear on the show, if you would like that to happen. So that's it for today. Um, I hope to be hearing from a few of you then with requests and questions. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles, for the mindrenewed.com, and I look forward to speaking to you again in the very near future.